these photos aren't going to do justice, um, and it was a little bit darker under the shade, but I wanted to share just a few photos of Camp Cope with you. For those that do not know, it is a time where we get as counselors to spend a week with children whose parents, maybe one or possibly even both, parents are incarcerated currently. And as these counselors from our congregation would know, it's not easy. Um, I was, Donna was asking me, Donna and Linda were asking me, how did it go? I said, it went smoothly. And I said, there was only one incident where we, you know, we about to have to call the police. And I heard Linda's going, well, that doesn't sound so smooth. <laughs> it really was. Uh, overall, you know, very good, very good camp week. And so I wanted to just share. Here is Steve and Jesse having a Bible study with um, our camper, some of our younger campers in this group. We had 58 of them. Carly, very relaxed in her Bible study with, uh, with the little girls. They're strewn about um, here. But they were learning uh, the Shema that we had had a sermon about a year, a little over a year ago. And it was a great, great opportunity because they really took the time to, to learn these words and what they mean. And hopefully be able to take it home to their family. Of course, we got Elizabeth here. She's working with the kids. She's the photographer of a lot of these photos. And so this is the only one I could really get of her with her kids. Um, Jesse in his element fishing or teaching the kids how to fish. And in fact or at least how to cast, and on one of these days, one of these boys, Quincy, in this case, uh, caught a fish, and it was just a great, exciting moment that I know he will cherish for the rest of his life, because some of them don't even know what fish look like, so this is really cool uh, for them to have that experience. Uh, one of the nights, we end up having our Devo outside, and end up, from that, roasting marshmallows and um, s'mores and what have you, so it was a great, great, great day, uh, great week. One of the young men, this is his sixth year. His name is Dontrell Spencer. Dontrell, I knew when he was just a little boy, and he said, Mr. Mitch, I would love to give um, the invitation, not the invitation, but the um, Devo on Wednesday night. And I remembered. And so <laughs> on Wednesday night, he gave the, gave the Devo, and he did a fantastic job uh, with the kids. Very emotional. And he would go through every camper give them a hug, tells them he loves them and wants to be as unto them a big brother and encourage them in the way of God. Just outstanding to see um, the growth that he has made over these years. And of course, then on, was it Wednesday or Thursday? I don't remember. Wednesday or Thursday, I think it was. We had, on this particular day, we had five baptisms pouring down rain. I'm just going to let you watch some of these baptisms. And we end up having about 12 total um, during the week. And, and so anyway, just give you a little sense of what's going on. baptized the name of Jesus Christ. For the permission of your sins. Michael, I baptize you in the name of Jesus Christ for your sins. You need to be washed away. Amen. God, I you too. I you Jesus Christ for the mission of your sins. Sergio, in the name of Jesus, I baptize you that you may have newness of life. Praise God. Good. So, give you an idea of just how amazing um, the week was. And for some of you, you only see one baptism once in a blue moon. Imagine on the day of Pentecost. All the individuals being baptized, thousands, right, 3,000, just absolutely an exciting time. And so it was a wonderful, wonderful week. 
And um, I hope you get a chance to ask any of the counselors, particularly if you may be interested in helping out next year. We could always use more counselors so that it eases the burden so that not anyone has to, to bear it all. But anyway, great, great week. Talk to the counselors if you get a chance. All right, so there are, are statements that are made in the scriptures that somehow over time we take those very statements and we use them in our own way, right? I heard it at camp. I heard it. Uh, I've heard it here. I've heard it elsewhere. Uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be in your midst, right? We hear things like that. And so it's like, all right, when we go on our vacation, we got church services right in our, in our uh, whatever, our hotel room, our cabin, and we use it like that. When we go to the scripture, we say, oh, it has nothing to do with that. I mean, you could be one person. And the Lord is going to be with you, right? Doesn't have to be where two or three are gathered. And so, but sometimes we take things from scriptures and we use them in a manner that was not intended in scripture. Even if we may be okay with the phraseology of that. Well, one of those types of statements or phrases that are often used today seems to have a disconnect. Even if we may use it correctly for our own purposes, but a disconnect from the actual scriptures and how it's used there. And that is pertaining to meat or milk and meat, right? We often hear of milk and meat when we're talking about Bible studies or sermons, right? This is the, a milk sermon. This is a meat sermon, right? We say it, something along those lines. And, and with that, it's perfectly acceptable because we know how we are using it. And it has the point to get across or the point is gotten across as we use that phrase, thing is, when we go to scripture, how is that phrase used? And all of a sudden, it has a different connotation. And you may not have known that. And I'm wanting us to spend a little bit of time looking at, well, what does the Bible have to say about this subject matter? And what are the practical application that comes from it? Because, again, there is a sense of disconnect between the way we use it today and with the way the scripture has used it. There's a little bit of overlap in, in some case, in one particular case that we're going to look at in Hebrews. But... I don't know where this was. I don't know if it's from the Princess Bride or somewhere. I heard it. I don't think you think it means, well, you know what I'm saying. It's not what you think it means, that <coughs> phrase. So it doesn't mean what you think it means, basically, when it comes to the phrase about milk and meat. And so we typically use this word exclusively when it deals with the depth of our knowledge of, or understanding of God's word. So again, this subject matter, we've determined this is basic, this is principle, this is fundamental, and we call it milk. And then for whatever, everybody has their own version of what is meaty, but this is not fundamental, but this is beyond that. And so we consider it more the meat of God's word. So he's on the milk of God's word. I wish he was preaching the meatier, whatever the things are. I've heard this preaching 25 years. I've heard this statement for me, myself, I've heard it for other preachers, I've heard it of Bible class teachers, and so on and so forth. And so, what does the Bible have to say about that phrase? That's what I'm wanting us to start with. And so, in, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the, right? Peacemakers, the poor in spirit, so on and so forth. And in verse 6, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not after God's word, although I've actually heard it said among brethren when they they are trying to quote the Sermon on the Mount. They'll say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God's word. 
Well, that's not wrong that we would hunger and thirst after God's word. But very intentionally, Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, doing what is right, that is the point of what he was trying to say. And it is this very concept of hungering and thirsting after righteousness that you will see the phrases that deal with meat and milk from this vantage point. And so if you are the type of person that was all these years looking at milk and meat from a standpoint of a little bit of knowledge, a lot of knowledge, you might want to rethink some things about that phrase because that phrase is used three different times in the New Testament. And we're going to look at those phrases. All right. I want us to start with 1 Corinthians 3 because this is what um, was read for us in our scripture reading just before the sermon. And I want us to start off with this very concept. So the church at Corinth, they've got issues. Right? A lot of their issues are the fact that they are being very worldly in how they handle their relationships with one another. There's divisions over a variety of issues. And so when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is going to deal with those very issues. And here's how he begins to address this very mindset. He says, I, brethren, I could, I could not speak to you as to spiritual people. But I spoke to you as to carnal people. In other words, I spoke to you as those who are babes in Christ. Okay? He's equating babes in Christ with carnally minded individuals. So when you, when you stop and think about it, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, and he was saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Your mind cannot understand these things because, I mean, Nicodemus' mind was fleshly, even if he wasn't worldly. But there is the connect right there. It's the idea that you need to think on a different plane. You need to have a paradigm shift in, in your thought process. In this case, he's actually dealing with the fact that they are worldly, carnally, fleshly-minded, earthly-minded Christians. And so it is as if you are babes. He didn't call them babes but you're like likened unto babes in Christ. So he says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food because until now you were not able to receive it. Even now you're still not able because your mind is not spiritually minded. You're set on the ways of the world, on the ways of the flesh. You, you address things not from a heavenly perspective, but from an earthly perspective. You deal with relationships from that earthly perspective, not a heavenly perspective. And that heavenly perspective is the contrast to that babe in Christ perspective. And so he says, you're still carnal. Where there are envy, strife, divisions among you, you are not carnal, or are you not carnal behaving like mere men? But you're not mere men. You're in Christ, he talks about. And if you're in Christ, you need to grow in Christ, and you need to grow in righteousness, if you will. And so milk, then, in this particular case, has nothing to do with your learning ability or where you have um, so much uh, storage of information from a biblical standpoint. That has nothing to do with you being spiritually minded or earthly minded. For instance, there are Christians who are brand new Christians who are mature in Christ, there are also Christians who have been Christians for decades, and they're as babes in Christ. 
Yet the one who is as a baby in Christ could have a lot of Bible knowledge. And the one who is mature in Christ may have very little Bible knowledge. But he's not regarded as a babe in Scripture. He might be regarded as a babe in knowledge, but not in righteousness. Okay? And again, look at how this is being used. In fact, Peter does something similar to Paul in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to go to that text here. In fact, if you read all of 1 Peter, its premise is based upon this point right here. Right? And that is how if you are going to leave the ways of this world and all the, the Gentile ways of sinful living, you're going to have to have a mind that grows in Christ. And what you're going to do is you're going to start off as newborn babes and you desire the pure milk of God's word so that you may grow. That's his point, right? But look at how he contrasts that growth with what happens when you stay a babe, if you will. And so 1 Peter chapter 2, look at what he goes on to say. He says in verse 1, he says, I want you to lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Because that's like mere men. That's not like those who follow Christ. I want you, with all of these fleshly ways, as newborn babes, I want you to desire the pure milk of the word. Why? Because through it, you're able to grow in righteousness. Not from a standpoint of being able to, to be the best Bible student, but to be the best Christ follower. That's the point. Okay, and so both Paul and Peter, as apostles of our Lord, use milk in this way. Well, go on to the third passage. And I want you to see this connection. In Hebrews chapter 5, and this is where there's a little bit of, of, I think, some overlay between the way it's used biblically and the way we now use it by and large today. So in Hebrews chapter 5, the whole premise is you've got Jewish Christians who are wavering in their faith. They, they believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, but now you have maybe family members, friends, co-workers, people in the Jewish community that are influencing you to turn away from the Christ whom you have put on by way of faith. And as a result of that, many of them are still living like people of the world rather than having a mind of Christ. And so what the Hebrew author is wanting to do, he's wanting to talk about some meteor things, therein lies how we use it today, to get to their actual behavior, their faith, their righteousness. And so in Hebrews chapter 5, he says this. I want you to look at verse, uh, let me see. I'm going to back up to verse 5, and then we'll pick up in verse 12. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become my priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear... And though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. Interesting because as a Jew, that whole dull of hearing has everything to do with that concept that we were talking about last week and even at camp about the Shema. That you're able to hear, understand, and be obedient to the teaching of God's word. And the reality was these Jews who had put on Christ became dull of hearing. In other words, they weren't practicing the faith. They were going backwards from what they've come from. And so he uses the illustration here. In verse 12, he says, Because by this time you ought to be teachers. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. Okay, so it sounds like God's word, right? The oracles of God, the teachings or the words of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. Look at the way he uses it. Everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. The words that deal with our lives in Christ pertains to righteousness, and he says, you are unskilled. In other words, all these words that are supposed to change and transform your life from the way of the world to a follower of Jesus, it's not translating. And by now, you should be the shining example to others. You should be teachers to others. Not necessarily Bible class teachers, but teachers by the way you lead in the way of righteousness. And see, you're unskilled in righteousness. You're unskilled in the oracles of God's word that teaches about righteousness. But, he says in verse 14, solid food belongs to those who are of full age. Solid food belongs to the mature. We get that physically. We understand what that means, even in its metaphoric sense. And here's how he uses it. It is those who by reason of use, by exercise, by practicing, by living the use of the words, the oracles of God of righteousness, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Okay, so you grow in Christ and over time you learn how to deal with those gray matters, not just the simple stuff, but gray matters, and you're able to discern how to walk with the Lord. That's what he's saying here. That is why he goes on to say in verse 1 following of Hebrews 6, he says, therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles in Christ. Well, what are they? He goes on to say, if we're going to go on past the elementary principles of Christ, it is like Ephesians 4, verse 11 following, where we become a perfect man. Or James chapter 3, a perfect man who is able to bridle his tongue. Or is 1 Corinthians 13, the one who is matured to perfection, because that's what love does. All of these things are saying the same thing. He says, instead of going um, on to perfection... Not laying again the foundation, the elementary principles in Christ, the foundation which is including the principles regarding repentance from dead works and, and a faith toward God. All that's elementary, right? When you become a child of God, it's to put away the old man and put on Christ. That's elementary teaching. That's elementary principles in Christ. 
that included not only that, but the teaching about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead. All those things he called elementary principles in Christ. But the mature, the meaty things are the things that build you up into this man that is able to handle life through the teaching of God's word in righteousness. That's what he's dealing with. And so he wanted to use this concept about Melchizedek, right? But because they weren't paying attention and dull of hearing, because they weren't living this life of righteousness, they could not make that correlation. They could not make the connection. And so he spends, what, chapters 5, 6, and 7 dealing with Melchizedek's priesthood and, and then, of course, making the correlation of Jesus' high priesthood. To make the point, we are in this priesthood. And if we're in this priesthood, here's how we ought to live. That we're so close to the oracle teachings of God's words of righteousness that we live out our faith in full conviction drawing near the throne of grace. And so all of those things play into this thing we call the subject of milk or meat. Okay? So here's where we kind of wrap things together for the point when it comes to these kinds of sermons and teachings. In today's vernacular, when we use meat and milk type phrases, it seems to be limited to just knowledge. And I know it's not meant to be limited to knowledge, but that's typically what I hear. When we need to hear more preaching along milk or meat, it's about what we consider to be principles, about what we consider to be teachings that are fundamental teachings. And it's not to say that there aren't fundamental teachings. There are. There are basic biblical things that need to be taught. But when we look at God's word and find out what those teachings are, sometimes what we consider fundamental teachings are not necessarily fundamental to us. What we consider meaty subject matters is not the way first century Christians viewed meaty subject matters. For instance, when you look through the scriptures and the teachings of it, and when you contrast that, the, the milk and meat subjects in scripture, you might have something like this, Romans chapter 12, right? Brethren, I beseech you by the... By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, right? Having your minds transformed or renewed through the teaching of God's word where you can go from this carnal-minded to spiritually-minded individual. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 with other passages, Romans 14, a number of other passages where you get to see how that concept of babe-like living to mature living takes place. Like, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the entire chapter, he says, now concerning meats offered to idols, right? We all have knowledge. We all have a, a, a lot of knowledge about the subject matter. And he goes on to say, knowledge does what? It just puffs up. Love, he said, builds up or edifies. And then he gets into how some do not have that knowledge, the knowledge that is mature, and that is why he goes on dealing with other subject matters and comes to the conclusion, the pinnacle of what we call that chapter about love. And when he refers to that as being perfect. Because that's what all the rest of the scriptures deal with, with regard to perfection, maturity, completion in Christ. And so 
The disconnect in how we use the word milk and meat today is very different than how it was used centuries ago, particularly biblically speaking. So here's the thing. Here's the way the Bible deals with milk and meat subject matters. Consider it this way. When you deal with salvation issues, it's the milk of God's word. Right? He was talking about repentance from dead works and of faith. All that is milk. That's things about the flesh and the needing for salvation. When you look at what the meat of God's word is, when you go and see where all the passages that deal with meaty things in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 3, Hebrews 5, 1 Peter chapter 2, and other passages that give these, these similar phrases, you'll talk about a sanctified life. What I mean by that is a life that is set apart from the world and is mature in Christ. So that when you have problems, you know how to deal with problems because you have a mature spiritual mind and not a carnal mind. You're able to discern right from wrong, good from evil, biblically, because you have God's word dwelling in your heart. And you're following it. And so that's how you see it in scripture. Well, that'll lead me to this. I want you to look at these passages. In fact, I've, I made this point because I was doing a lot of study in thinking through what this looks like with milk and meat. Because often, well, not often, but over the years, I've heard it from other preachers, um, from other church members, um, including myself, when we use this phrase about milk and meat, about what to preach. And we're told, well, preach the whole counsel of God. Well, what is that? For some of us, it might be depending on where we are among brethren in our various congregations, it might be whatever issue is at hand. What does the Bible say about what the whole counsel of God's word is? Well, if we look at these passages, look at what is considered fundamental and what isn't considered uh, media, if you will, and you'll notice these passages. Luke chapter 10, rich young ruler says to Jesus, Hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You must have the right way of worshiping God. Is that what his answer was? At this moment, when he's dealing with eternal life, he could have chosen anything to deal with. He said, get the, get the order of the Lord's Supper the right way or you'll lose your soul. He doesn't. Here's what he says. You love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and live. That's Jesus' word. So along comes a preacher a hundred years later, a thousand years later, two thousand years, ten thousand, however long the Lord decides to let us continue living on this earth. What is he going to preach on with regard to salvation? Things associated with eternal life. Well, interesting of all the things that Jesus said, he uses the Shema. Love God, love your neighbor. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. That's what he uses. Then we go to a passage where Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, I'm wanting you to establish elders in every church. I want you to do this, do that. Here's how you establish um, elders. Here's how deacons need to live if they're going to be serving as deacons. And then he goes on um, to other subject matters. That's his first letter. Then second letter, hey, I, I want you to remind them of these things. And a passage that we are very familiar with, but often used maybe in a, maybe a different slant 
is in 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy again and read verses 16 and 17 with me and see if we can understand it from this milk and meat vantage point. All right. Verse 10. You have carefully followed my teaching, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. So I think you followed me in this regard. You followed carefully all of my manner of life. Yes, verse 12, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving being and being deceived. So you followed me. You followed my life of, if I can use it in a paraphrase, my life of righteousness in Christ. But there are individuals who deceive and are deceived. You, however, verse 14, continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation. What are the words of salvation? You love God, you love your neighbor. All scripture, he says then, is given by inspiration of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in what? The teaching is for righteousness. The reproof is for righteousness. The correction is for righteousness. The instruction is all for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who on the pure milk of God's word put away the flesh and put on righteousness that is in Christ. And when you're mature, you're able to, through righteousness, discern good and evil. You're able to have discussions when you disagree how you disagree. Because you do it with, as a mature person in Christ. That's what the scriptures do for you. When preaching takes place in the pulpit... It is for righteousness. Now, thanks be to God that through the preaching in the pulpit or in Bible classes that we have here at the building or Bible studies or discussions you have one-on-one, -on -one, however they take place, the benefit may be information. The benefit may be things that are beyond what we would consider as righteous or godly living. But the focus, biblically speaking, is on righteousness. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's not that hard. Go live righteously. That's what this whole Bible is about. Go live righteously. Go live as God had intended you to live from the very beginning when he put man in the garden. Live righteously. Walk with him. Every law that you can read, the 613 laws, as the Jews would put it and categorize it, of Judaism is all found and bound in two statements. Love God, love your neighbor. Isn't that what was told? When, when Jesus was told, what is the great commandment? Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. 
He said, these two, love God, love your neighbor, and on these two hang the law and prophets. All the teachings, all those laws were to bring you into proximity, into focus of righteous living. That's what they have to do with. So, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love God, love your neighbor. Look at Matthew 25. On the day of judgment, of all the things that Jesus said, if you had gotten this right, you would have been saved. He says, when I was in prison, when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was naked, you came to my need. He could have used any other thing dealing with the judgment of where you're going to go to heaven or hell. He could have chose a whole lot of subject matters. But whether it's eternal life or judgment and everything in between, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it all pertains to how you live between your relationship of yourself and your God and your fellow man. Sometimes I think we want to make the scriptures more difficult than what is already there. I think it's already difficult enough trying to live a righteous life. I really do. Why would we want to muddy up the waters and make it more difficult is beyond me. But the older I get, the more I'm trying to learn this book so I can teach it. And so that you can teach it to the world that's lost in sin, the more simple it becomes until I finally see it clearly. We need to be actually fulfilling the great law, right? Fulfill each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Love one another, fulfill the law of Christ or the royal law. All throughout the Old and New Testament, that's exactly what it said, particularly in the New Testament. So, do you want milk? Put off the old man, put on Christ. You want meat? Be able to discern. Because Christ died for the other person that you disagree with. Look at Romans 14 again. Look at 1 Corinthians 8 again. Look at where there's this difference between them two. And look at how the Apostle Paul handles the same way in both situations. Look at other scenarios in which brethren dealt with things that were considered to be either milk or meat. And you'll see this very same message. So let's wrap everything up. If we're going to follow after God's word and teach everything his word teaches... You're going to see a very simple message. If you want to get all the Bible trivia facts, hey, cool. But that's not going to help you live righteously. In the end, all those Bible facts might make you an amazing encyclopedic resource. But it's not going to make you an amazing, mature person who is fed on the solid word of righteousness. I hope that makes sense what I'm saying. I really do. Because when we leave this building, we should be leaving more spiritually mature in Christ. We should be able to walk out of this room and stand a little bit more different than the way the world handles differences. When the world lives carnally and we live as peculiar people, spiritually minded. Thinking and speaking and doing the way Jesus does. That's the hope. That's part of the reason why when you are called 
from darkness into light, when you're called to go from the way of the world to the way of Christianity, you're putting that old man of sin to death in baptism. And that you're resurrected to walk in newness of life. You begin to put on through this words of righteousness right here. Through its corrections, through its reproofs, through its teachings. All those instructions for righteousness. That's what it's for. And I pray, friend, if you haven't put on Christ, that you will do so. And it's not just getting dunked in water. You are changing. You're being changed in the way you live. And hopefully over time, your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, everyone looks at you and sees a transformational change, a renewing of your mind, the way you think of things and the way you do things. And not carnally minded anymore. They may not put it in those very words, but if they see that, you will be the kind of person that Jesus meant for you to be in him. The kind of a person that God wanted man to be from the very beginning. And can be found, once again, through Jesus. So if you're here, you're subject to that invitation. The invitation to come and to be changed into the newness of life, I ask, I beg of you, for your salvation's sake, that you'll do that. That you'll put on Christ. And brethren, if you've been walking and have this concept of milk and meat from our modern vernacular, it's not wrong to use it that way. Just know the Bible doesn't use it that way in its fullness. And realize how it can be used. As, as we, you read and study God's word, how it should instruct you in the way you should go. And you will be better off for it. Anyway, if you're here and you're subject to that invitation, why don't you come forward? It's together we stand and sing.